Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I have Karen Blumenthal with us. She is the author of Jane Against the World, Roe v. Wade and the Fight for Reproductive Rights. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course, grateful to have you on. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Where I want to obviously, I want to dive into all the content of the book because I think this is a really cool discussion to have. But why? Let's start with like, excuse me, with you. Like, why did you decide to write the book? Well, I mean, partly I was because I was asked. So just to, oh, to put gotcha. that out there. That makes. But, sense. <laughs> <laughs> I had written a book um, several years ago called "Let Me Play: The Story of Title Nine which was about uh, the creation of Title IX, which is the law that we associate with how girls got to play sports. And um, Title IX was very important to me because I was a kid who wanted to play sports and growing up in Texas, there were no sports at all for girls, none, until I was in high school. And by then it was, for me anyway, it was really too late. And um, so it was very significant. Uh, Things changed very fast and a lot of girls didn't know about that. But the story also was a little bit about the second wave of the women's movement, which was also very much an interest of mine. Um, and then when I got a call from a publisher saying, we, we really think there might be a, 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 some kind of book in reproductive rights, and would you be interested in something on Roe versus Wade? It just seemed like a really great companion to offer a history of something that's been terribly controversial, but which we really know very little about. And that was true about Title IX, too. It's less controversial today, but when I wrote it, um, uh, there were still a lot of fights about how girls' sports were killing boys' sports, and um, the girls were taking away opportunities from boys, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and it was a very controversial subject, but nobody knew anything about how it came about. And the same is true for this. <clears throat> and in fact, I learned a ton researching it. The other reason was that I'm from Dallas, I grew up here. So I was very much aware that Roe versus Wade was filed in Dallas. And, um, and I'm going to cough. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. Are <laughs> oh, we recording? We're recording, right? Yeah, yeah. This I is apologize. A, I just, I got it. Podcast. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. So um, I grew up in Dallas, and I was very much aware that Roe versus Wade is a Dallas case. Surprisingly, a lot of people I know in Dallas don't know that. And so I was just interested in, in the local history. What, what is the local story here? And uh, those were the two things that propelled me. Gotcha, okay. Um, so I actually, and this, this goes to show you how little I paid attention in school. Um, I feel like I remember in like history class, Roe v. Wade or something was brought up. It wasn't like, I don't think it was like a huge topic, but it was brought, but I honestly don't even remember exactly what that was. If you lived in Texas, it probably isn't in a textbook at all, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, well, I feel I mean, you know, it may not be um, because it's controversial, because there are um, a lot of uh, political and religious overlays. Um, yeah. What you have heard, though, no doubt, is people arguing about it on television, people saying things at political rallies. That's how we know it. And the way it's presented is, you know, you're either for, you're against, and the truth is, most of us are really somewhere in a middle ground. Um, you know, understanding that there are circumstances, even if you're pro-life sometimes, um, understanding that there are limits and squeamishness, even if you're really pro-choice. 
the truth is that most of us are somewhere in the middle, but the way that the argument is presented is very black and white, which it's not. And um, I had written previously about guns, um, a book that was for, it's also for teens called Tommy, the Gun That Changed America, which tried to get at our argument about guns, which is very similar, like, right? We see it as you're either for or you're against, but in truth, most people are somewhere in the middle. Um, I'd written about prohibition. Um, I'd written about Hillary Clinton. So, um, you know, a little bit back to your other question. If you've written about guns, booze, and Hillary Clinton, you know, why not abortion rights? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm starting to see a trend here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I do think that these arguments, these issues are more nuanced. They are um, richer and more complex than what you get in a soundbite on television or a Saturday, Sunday morning news show or a political rally. And I think, I personally think that history really provides a lot of context for real, the real world. And so that's why I do it. Gotcha. Um, so, so then again, the what, or is it like a very long, like confusing case? Like what exactly was Roe v. Wade? <laughs> Roe v. Wade was, you know, for something that we have spent years and years and years arguing about, it was a shockingly small sort of thing. It was oh. filed in Dallas exactly 50 years ago in March of 1970 um, by, by a lawyer who had very little experience. She was a pretty recent graduate of the University of Texas at Austin Law School. She'd worked as a clerk for a federal judge and then was working for a bankruptcy firm, but she um, believe strongly in the women's rights movement that was going on in 1970 and uh, thought the Texas law was just too rigid. At the time, the Texas law only allowed for an abortion to save the life of a woman. There were no exceptions for rape or incest. There was no exceptions for fetal deformities, which um, this was a time still where there was uh, rubella and rubella caused deformities frequently and women who were exposed early in their pregnancies. Um, it was a very rigid approach. Um, and so she, she filed this lawsuit on behalf of a plaintiff known as Jane Rowe, who we now know was a woman named Norma McCorvey, who was 19 and pregnant for the third time and unmarried. And um, they thought when they filed it, it was just going to be one of many lawsuits being filed across the country. In fact, um, it spent a total of three hours in court. There was never any witnesses. There was no testimony. There was simply a presentation first before a three-judge panel of uh, two federal district judges and one circuit court judge, and they found the law to be unconstitutional. But even then, they thought it, it, that Texas would just have to rethink its law. They didn't think it would become a national case, but it just happened to be the one that was accepted by the Supreme Court, which interestingly heard the case twice, which is very unusual, but that was because um, two members of the court passed away in early uh, 1971. And uh, so it was only a seven member court and, and that seven member court wrestled with whether they should make a decision on something so dramatic without two more members. So Richard Nixon appointed two new Republican appointees to the court and the case was heard again in 1972. Uh, and, and these are just one hour hearings uh, for both sides. So a, a total of three hours in a courtroom. And the decision came down on January the 22nd, 1973, a court that was predominantly Republican. The vote was seven to two with five Republicans voting 
for Roe versus Wade and one of the Republicans voting against it. So um, it's not what you think, right? That should surprise you, I think. Yeah. No, it's, it's not what I thought at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting, okay. So let's, um, let's go into the book and um, yeah, I'm excited for this. So I, I feel like I wanna go down the line and then we'll, we'll see where you know, things go. But first, who was Jane? How did you come up with the name Jane? Well, there's actually three Janes, um, at okay. least three Janes. So it became, to me, Jane is one of those names that you use when you're just referring to females generally, right? We, we talk about Jane Doe or Jane Roe or whatever. Um, but there were three. One was this Jane Roe, who was part of Roe versus Wade. Another was Jane Hodgson, who was a very, very prominent OBGYN in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, who really wanted to take good care of her patients. She'd been the head of the state OBGYN society. She um, was very highly regarded. And of course, there weren't very many women doctors at all uh, at this time in the, in the 50s and 60s when she was practicing. Um, but she was, she was very frustrated that women would come into her office sobbing just beside themselves, I mean, threatening suicide, and, uh, because they did not want to be pregnant or they could not raise another child or they could not raise a child and that she couldn't do anything about it. And so um, she, just, she was willing to challenge the law. She had a patient who had, I think, three other children and was pregnant for a fourth time and had been exposed to rubella early in her pregnancy. And she did want a child, but she, she, didn't, she wanted to have a healthy child. Um, and uh, uh, Jane Hodgson agreed to perform an abortion in a hospital on this woman. And um, uh, she was arrested and convicted of violating the state's law. Her case was another case that was pending before the Supreme Court as the Roe case moved through. Um, and then there was another group that called itself Jane that was a cooperative out of Chicago that started as a group of feminists who uh, were referring women to safe though illegal abortions. And um, there were several, actually there were a number of these kinds of referral services around the country. So, so truth is, even when abortion was illegal, there was tons of abortion. That's just a fact. Yeah. And um, these people, there were all kinds of abortion providers in the Chicago area. Uh, some of them were doctors with drinking or drug problems. Some of them were doctors who were incompetent. Some of them were doctors who were competent, but perhaps because they were African-American, they, they couldn't work at prestigious hospitals. So they, they, they did this kind of work on the side. Some of them were not doctors at all. And one of their, uh, the people who they were using um, for abortions turned out not to be a doctor, although he was pretty adept and they hadn't had any issues. Um, but he taught them, he, he, he wanted to relocate. And so he taught these women, average women, just like the women I know and my kids, parents, whatever, taught them how to perform abortions. And for a couple of years, they performed abortions and rented apartments on women who were um, desperate for this service, which is to me just a shocking thing to think about providing, you know, average people with no medical training providing that kind of service. Um, and yet um, many thousands of women came through that service. Okay, and then was there any, any known like complications or did, did the operation just run like smoothly? It, you know, it's not actually all that complicated a procedure if you know what you're doing, but there were, uh, there were times when people ended up in the hospital, they do, there were no known deaths. Um, there were some people who ended up um, 
you know, needing additional medical care. They did have some people uh, to back up with that or to help admit people if there was a problem. Uh, but there were very, very few complications because they were pretty well trained. They had found suppliers for um, antiseptics, for tools, for all kinds of things. I mean, it's, again, it's a really stunning yeah. story what these women did. And um, they were really, you know, just average women. One of them had four kids. One of them was a student who was taking time off from college. Um, they were just people who were very committed to helping other women. Um, so they were arrested, uh, they were charged, but they were never actually tried. So their lawyer managed to, while, while Roe versus Wade was pending, managed to put off the trial. And then um, once Roe was over, they dismissed the charges, but they kept their tools. <laughs> um, they could have charged them for performing medicine without a license. I mean, you know, just in itself, but they, the uh, Chicago chose not to, or, or the federal court in Chicago chose not to do that. Or the state, I guess it was the state court. So it seems to me that, so like, at least, well, that's not always good, but so the root of abortion, it, it came from good intentions. Yeah, well, yeah. So let's, you know, let's do want to do a little history. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah. Let's do yeah, that. so let's do, so one of the things I found um, yeah. was that you can't separate birth control and abortion. For the first several thousand years of humanity, um, they were one and the same. So a woman wasn't really considered pregnant. Remember, this is well before pregnancy tests, right? Well before modern science, well before um, sonograms or anything, x-rays, anything. Um, you had to go kind of with gut instinct for medicine. And so for the first few thousand years, um, a, a woman was not considered pregnant until what's called quickening, when she feels the baby move. And that happens at, give or take, about halfway through a pregnancy. And so anything that happened before then was really something intended to restore the menses, to restore menstruation. And so um, uh, women, ha there has been abortion and there have been efforts at controlling uh, whether or not one gets pregnant going all the way back to the beginning of recorded history. Uh, because of course, it's the most significant thing for a woman, for whether she, you know, how she can provide for her family, how she can provide for herself. Um, you know, and, and every woman, woman is different, but just like there's women who struggle with fertility and struggle to have a child, there are some women who get pregnant really, really easily and cannot have a child year after year after year after year without substantial damage to their health and well-being. So, you know, again, a lot of people are in the middle, but there are people sort of on both sides. So this, this issue of how to control your reproduction has, has been there for women since the beginning. And um, for the first whatever thousands of years, abortion, early term abortion was not considered um, illegal. It was um, not illegal till after quickening. And that changes in the 1800s, primarily in the middle to later 1800s. And a lot of things happen. One is that science now knows that something is growing before um, quickening and that quickening is not a magic thing it's 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 just uh, and that that even though there's still no pregnancy tests those don't actually come around till the 20th century um, there at least is an understanding that there is an embryo and a fetus before quickening um, the other thing is that that medical doctors organize and form the medical Medi American Medical Association with the intent of formalizing medicine um, at that point there's all kinds of people practicing medicine and calling themselves doctors and so doctors want to formalize it, and the AMA does that. 
Um, it's, a, it's a male organization. They are really hostile to having women join. Um, and for the first time, men begin to take over women's health care because for generations and generations, women had taken care of women. So that too begins to uh, weigh in on the subject matter. And a group of uh, these doctors decides that um, because something is growing, um, abortion should be outlawed. It should be illegal. At the same time, birth control becomes illegal thanks to the Comstock laws, which were started and, and uh, encouraged by Anthony Comstock, who was somebody who just thought anything to do with sex or reproduction or um, you know, bodily, bodily fluids was uh, obscene. And um, so uh, condoms, which were in their early form, uh, rubber condoms, which were in their early form were outlawed. Um, things that worked much like a diaphragm or a cervical cap does today were outlawed. Any kind of birth control was also outlawed. So all this happens at the same time. And birth control, in fact, remains illegal all the way up to um, close to 1940. So, okay. so they're, they're intrinsically tied, um, even though we tend to look at them as very separate issues today. Yeah, yeah, because, well, um, I guess because, and I don't know, but does birth control, is it actually, is it, is it like killing it after, or is it like, how is that? How does birth control work? Yeah, I guess that's the question. Well, birth control is intended to keep you from getting pregnant. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so condoms, obviously, co condoms were allowed because they had a health benefit. They prevented sexually transmitted diseases. So yeah. condoms were allowed, but not for the purpose of preventing pregnancy, mind you, just for the purpose of preventing STDs, but, or STIs. But um, birth control might mean um, a, a diaphragm, which fits over the cervix to prevent the sperm from um, meeting up with the egg condoms, which do something similar. Um, douches were popular in the early part of the 20th century, intended to kill the sperm before they got to their destination. All of that was intended to prevent um, the, the fertilization and implantation of a fertilized egg. Um, just, just to do a quick amount of biology, um, in, in medicine or in biology, a woman is not pregnant until the egg implants. It travels for a few days and some unknown fertilized eggs just disappear, never implant. So it's not until it implants and begins to grow that you have the beginnings of an embryo and a fetus. Um, it, it has to be implanted, um, gotcha. right? Because otherwise it just disappears out of the body. And we're talking about something that, at this point that is a very small cellular structure, a few cells. So not something we could know about or see or capture or anything like that yeah. um, but uh but there are some religions that perceive that fertilized egg still in the fallopian tube as life um even though it's not implanted um it's a it, it, it that sounds like a technical thing but it's it's significant because we don't really know anything about those fertilized eggs until they do implant yeah okay so, yeah. Um, so let me ask you this, and you may have touched on it already, but so you, when I did some research prior, that you have some hopes for those who are anti-abortion by reading this book. So I guess what what are what are those? Well, uh, so I really tried to tell the whole history. You won't find that in. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't find it in any other books <laughs> about Roe versus Wade or or reproductive rights. Um, I tell the history of the right to life movement, which started 
not after Roe versus Wade, but much earlier. Um, there were kind of two or three steps. One is there were these laws um, that existed from the middle 1800s. Um, and then again, birth control became legal around the late 1930s. Yeah. And then in the 50s, after World War II, there began to be a lot more discussion about whether there should be some exceptions, whether a 12-year-old a, a who's been raped by her father should have to carry his baby, whether um, a woman who's been exposed to rubella should have to carry the baby. These, these were questions that were initially raised, interestingly, by lawyers and then by doctors, or I should take that back, by doctors and then by lawyers, um, because they saw significant issues in their own practices and their own work. Um, and so starting in the 1960s, there was a move to what, to what was known as reform abortion laws to add some more exceptions. Um, just briefly, abortion, there was legal abortion. If you were pregnant and you, your life was in danger, you had a heart condition, you had a kidney condition, you had cancer, maybe, um, you could go before a uh, you could, your doctor could present your case to a committee at a hospital and they would decide whether you were entitled to an abortion. And those were considered legal because you went through the establishment. But some, some hospitals did abortions on women exposed to rubella and some didn't. Some did abortions on women who had cancer and some didn't. Some did abortions on women um, because it affected their long-term health and some didn't. So it was very inconsistent. And this concerned the legal folks because because you know, laws are intended to be at least somewhat consistent. So the first wave in the 1960s was to reform these laws. And that's when the right to life movement gets started was by people who, who were worried that there would be um, you know, more abortion and that they were opposed to abortion personally through their faith or for whatever reason. Um, the majority of the right to life groups were um, driven by Catholics and the Catholic faith and the Catholic church, but not all of them. There were also Protestants involved and uh, sometimes Orthodox Jews who were opposed. Um, uh, and they fought the changes to legislation um, across the country, but there were primarily just a few really big ones, Minnesota, California, New York. Um, and they, did, they didn't actually, um, the actual beginnings of the Right to Life Committee was through the U.S. Catholic Conference, um, and it didn't actually separate and become its own individual nonprofit until after Roe versus Wade. So I, I actually spent a lot of time. I, I read letters um, about the creation of it, uh, written by the Catholic Conference and written by others. Um, I have some stories in there about um, how that grew in California. I really tried to reflect um, the differences of opinion from the beginning of um, the abortion rights movement in the U.S. Got it. Yeah, no, that I think that's what I, I personally love the most about it all is like from my point of view, like I haven't done enough research to know, but it seems to me on both opposing sides, there's like extremists, right? And, th and those are the ones that make the most noise. Right. So that, that's what you hear about. You know, it's like on the one side, it's like you are killing a person so no abortion is bad and then on the other side it's like well what about um you know these uh conditions that a woman could have or you know if she was raped at uh, 10 or 12 years you know like then what and it's um both are pretty like extreme so i think there's there's definitely some sort of a middle ground i think but it's definitely a sensitive topic <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, but just, just like statistically um so also it was not a political issue until yeah. 
until the Reagan administration, until the beginnings of the moral majority, which is right before Reagan was elected. And it doesn't really become a red state, blue state, a Republican Democrat issue truly until the early 1990s. Although uh, politicians kind of had to commit to one or the other starting in the 80s. But even then, um, even today, 30% of Republicans consider themselves pro-choice, 10% of Democrats consider themselves pro-life. Um, the majority of people in America over and over in polls, about two thirds, maybe a little bit more, support Roe versus Wade. Um, but it's, it is admittedly a complicated subject. I mean, yeah. when you've seen a sonogram, it's hard to feel, I think it's hard for a lot of people, I should say, to feel comfortable or to feel um, you know, great about any of it. But the, the truth is that the thing that I think I probably feel the strongest about is that women don't make these decisions easily or lightly. I mean, most of us don't go to the dentist easily. So yeah. I don't, I, I do, I do wonder or, or question whether someone thinks that women um, do this on a whim. They don't. It's a significant decision for everybody involved. And um, I guess I would at least want people to respect that, that that's the case. Yeah, you know what? I'm glad you said that too, because I do think, you know, some people, which, and I told you before we started, that are more on the anti abortion side. Like, I think that is kind of what it, and again, it's because the, the people that are so extreme, they're usually the loudest. So, yeah. it's like, that's what you, you hear is it's like, you know, there's, all these women killing their babies, you know? <laughs> and I don't. It, it, but that's what you hear, and it's like, okay, well, my moral or comp compass just kind of goes off, and I'm like, okay, well, that sounds wrong, right? Uh, right, know. and it, and it gets very, it does get very complicated because then yeah. they want to say, well, what's your reasons? But then who's to decide? You know, who's to decide my reasons or your reasons for anything, right? I mean, this is where it gets very slippery. Um, it was a problem when abortion was illegal because there were different sets of standards all across the country within, within one community, within New York City or within Los Angeles. There were different standards at different hospitals. And so, and here's the other thing, Tyler, that I think is really important um, that I learned in doing this research. I didn't, one really aware of it before, is the role that race and class plays into all of this. So if you were a white woman with some connections in the 50s and 60s, and maybe some money, you probably could figure out how to get an abortion by going through this hospital committee. If you were African-American or Latina, you probably didn't have access to that. Um, public hospitals did very, very few legal abortions. And so, and not only did you not, if you didn't have money, if you were lower income, then you couldn't go to that doctor who was competent but doing them on the side. You had to go to the guy who might not be a doctor at all because he was cheap. And so the race and class differences meant that if you, that if you, and this is still true today, if you live in the South and it's hard to get an abortion because you've got waiting periods and sonograms, if, you're, if you've got means, if you've got money, if you've got connections, you can work through that. You can get on a plane and go to New York and come back in a day, no big deal. But if you're poor, and that, and that unfortunately encompasses a lot of women of color, you don't have the same rights as that white woman with means. And that that disparity was um, fascinating to me, but also meaningful. Got it. And just to clarify, just so, just so I do know, when you yeah. say the same rights, you mean like 
I guess back then they like now they they have the same rights like technically, but you're just saying they might not have the same means. Yeah, country. right. But you but the but in many states it's there are a lot of barriers. You, there are waiting yeah. periods, mandatory sonograms. Um, cost is higher when those things are in place. So yeah. yes, it does it does involve means, but you might have a job that where you can't take a sick day. And if you have to if you have to come back twice, you know, on consecutive days, then you you have to take time off or uh, you know, so there yes, it, it is means, but it is also if if the obstacles are high enough, it does impact your rights, right? Gotcha. If you if you have to travel a long way to vote, then maybe you don't have the right to vote, right? I mean yeah, yeah, no. There, I, are, there are things point. that provide obstacles that are so high that, in fact, they they do impact your rights. So yeah, 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 like it's almost like it's not a right. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. You know, yeah, yeah. If, if they're like, yeah, you can vote, but you got to climb over this hundred foot wall. It's like, well, right, or you've got to drive to the next county and you don't have a car <laughs> that's working, or you know, you've got to work those hours, whatever. Yeah. So it, 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 there can be restrictions that make it discriminatory and I, I guess that's uh, that's really the point that I'm making that um, the, the women who have abortions today by and large are overwhelmingly low income um, uh, the, the, they're not a majority well they are probably majority women of color but they are disproportionately women of color um, they are more likely to be moms the majority of them are already mothers trying to take care of a family and they are likely to be single gotcha okay um, and I did, I think you, you probably spoke on some of this, but I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. So for some of, um, I know it says here, you, surprising findings from your, re like what were the most surprising things that you came across? Well, well one was this difference in race and class. Um, okay. Another was that we tend to think of abortion today uh, when we think of faith and the role of faith as being, faith being anti-abortion. And that's not the case. It's still not the case, but it is who we hear from. Um, but what was most, one of the most surprising things to me was this, uh, in 1967, a group of Protestant ministers and a few rabbis in New York City started a clergy consultation service to refer women to safe but illegal abortions. And they um, ended up uh, having kind of satellites all across the country. Thousands of clergy participated in this and counseled women and made sure that that was what they really wanted. Uh, otherwise, they would refer them to adoption services or help them um, through the pregnancy. But if they really wanted an abortion and that was clear that it was their choice and not someone else's, um, they helped refer them to safe procedures. They checked them out. They checked out the doctors and the facilities. Um, this, is, this is a part of the faith uh, calculation that I think a lot of people weren't aware of or I, I wasn't aware of. Um, that these people felt so strongly about the women in their congregations and the women in their community that they were willing, um, in some cases, to put their own um, safety at risk. Some of the, a, a small handful of these clergy were um, arrested um, and a few of them were charged, although I don't think anybody, well, one was convicted. His conviction was ultimately overturned um, after Roe. But, but it is, I actually ended up doing a chart in the book about the perception or the, uh, I should say, the, posi the position of different religions on abortion, both in the early 1970s and today. And some of them have gone more liberal and some of them have gotten more conservative. Um, but it is not a, a, a solid, there's not, it, it, religions don't land in one place 
all in one place. Let me try that again. Religions don't land all, all in one place. Um, there is a variety of views uh, from clergy, just as there is among the general population. Got it. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, no, it, it is. And I, um, th sorry, there's, this is a very interesting interview to me. I want to make sure we can get through everything. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm chatty, like, aren't I? Sorry. No, 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 it's good. It's good. I, I um, so for Jane Against the World, the one last thing I want to ask you on that is yeah. your own personal connection to it. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, really, my, my connection is that, you know, I was, I'm from Dallas, and it was a, it was a local story. It's okay. a subject that is very interesting to me and very important to me. I am, um, I don't have any personal story about abortion, to be honest. Um, okay. I am grateful that I was able to plan my pregnancies and that birth control worked for me. Yeah. Uh, I am grateful that, um, you know, I didn't have any difficulties one way or the other. Um, but I also uh, understand what it's like as a woman to be afraid that you're pregnant at a time when it would be a nightmare to be pregnant and what that would mean. So I guess um, that's meaningful to me too. Um, yeah. uh, and so, but I, I, I will say that I, I did not write this book to be partisan or to convince anybody of anything. I wrote this book to really explain what um, life has been like for women over uh, these years and what this means um, in terms of the medical and the legal and the religious and the human sort of side of it. And um, that's why I tried to tell all the stories. I tried to tell the right to life story. I tried to tell, um, you know, some of the parts that are uncomfortable. I mean, I talk about in here, um, the discomfort with later term abortions and how that's really hard on people who perform them. Um, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, you know, it's, it's not, I, I'm not, I, I don't try to judge. I also describe what the procedures are like because it occurred to me that there are young people, uh, particularly in my community, who no longer have to take health class, who may not understand the basics of biology, who may not understand birth control and how it works or what it is. They may not even know. Although I, I, mean, I used the term diaphragm earlier, um, I discovered my own kids didn't know what that was because we're way past that. But when I was a young person, that was one of the major forms of birth control. Um, and that kids would not, young people would not have the understanding of what actually happened. So I tried not to shy away from the facts in terms of offering it to readers. Got it. Um, yeah, no, and that's, uh, just to be clear, that's what I, I appreciate, appreciate about it. The, you know the most um so two more questions so i want to touch on tommy the gut so tommy is actually your latest book right no i actually did a book on i've done a few books since tommy i did a book on bonnie and clyde oh okay um, the making of a legend and i did a i did the hillary clinton biography after tommy but oh, yes wow, okay. Tommy's one of my books yes gotcha okay um <laughs> so i'm curious so like uh and then i'll ask that last one so for, I want to hear about Tommy and Hillary Clinton. So what's the most <laughs> surprising uh, thing you can share about Tommy and then same for Hillary Clinton's? Um, so, so the Tommy book um, was an effort. I was actually asked again, that was a conversation with an editor after the terrible shooting at Newtown, Connecticut, um, who said, gosh, I'm listening to people debate guns on cable television. Is there something we could do? And um, 
I had done a couple of books out of the 1930s. And so I was very familiar with the Thompson submachine gun, which was a weapon created for war, but a little bit too late, that moved to the streets and became the gun of, you know, the, the not the only gun, but the well-known gun of Capone and Dillinger and, and others. And it also um, became one way that J. Edgar Hoover uh, helped build the FBI from what was essentially um, kind of a forensics kind of organization into a police force of sorts. But the other thing that the Tommy gun did was our uh, lead to what became the country's first federal gun law, which is the law that uh, the Federal Firearms Act, which took automatic weapons off our streets. And um, uh, the debate started there. The, the National Rifle Association, which had been a safety and training organization, created its first uh, official lobbying arm. Um, at that time. And it, it really then was a way to get at the gun debate. And again, I live in Texas. Um, you know, you, you just have to be comfortable with the fact that people love their guns here. Um, yeah. And I respect that. I understand that. And I respect that. I also um, understand and respect people who feel like too many people die um, from guns every year. So I, I was trying to get at the roots of the debate. What does the Second Amendment say? And what's the history of it? So all of that was about that. And I, I think um, what I found most interesting about it was just that um, it didn't used to be controversial, like so many other things that had been politicized. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, Hillary Clinton, again, I spent a lot of time trying to tell the whole story. She's just a complex person. Um, um, <laughs> she's just a complex person. I, you know, I don't, she's not, I don't think she's a criminal. Um, I don't think she's a terrible person. I think she, personally, I think she probably, um, it's just not, as they say, the retail politician that her husband was. I think I have this little quote that I keep on my desk from that book that Mario Cuomo said in 1985. He said, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And she, she was just a prose person. She, she never had the poetry. So anyway, but it's, a, it's the only soup to nuts sort of biography of her that starts from her beginning and goes through um, the election. The paperback goes through the 2016 election. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so my last question for you is this, because like, it's a lot of good work that I'm sure these, you know, it's a lot of research. So like, what's your, what's kind of like your model or your process for like, actually, like, finishing these books? <laughs> yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I'm a journalist by background. I spent uh, more than 20 years as a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal. And so storytelling is a big part of what the Wall Street Journal does uh, with its longer front page stories. It's uh, very much uh, broke ground uh, in, in after World War II in terms of narrative storytelling. And um, so I was trained in that background, but also in being fair and being thorough and being detailed um, and looking to facts. And so um, I bring all of that background to doing these stories. So that's what I try to do. I, I try to get to the bottom of it. I do an enormous amount of research. Almost some days it's almost kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> it has to be a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But I have a real passion for the stories, and I have a passion for introducing some of these subjects to um, teen readers, but also to adults who sometimes really don't want 600 pages. Sometimes 300 pages is plenty. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, th th there is enough underpinning in these books that <clears throat> they're completely appropriate for adult readers. Um, so, I, you know, that's, that's what propels me, though, is the chance to tell a story 
an awful lot of adult books are um, persuasive. You know, they intend to, to, to they tend to sing to the choir. You know, yeah. to tell you that this politician is great or that politician is horrible or um, she's you know she's a criminal or she's a saint. Um, and the truth is that you know nobody is any of those things and um, entirely. And so um, I enjoy the chance to sort of present the whole picture, um, but that's, the audience is somewhat better for teens than, than it is for adults. Got it. Very interesting. This, I love it. Um, so look, I, really the last question is, the, or the floor is yours. If, if there's anything else you want to share, go for it. And then, um, you know, uh, website, uh, the book and social media, wherever people can find you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I guess the one thing I would say to Tyler is that reproductive rights are on the ballot in November. Re regardless of how you feel, this, this is a very significant election, not just for abortion, but for birth control. Um, this week, the Supreme Court's going to hear a case about whether um, companies can have more ways to opt out of providing birth control under health insurance. <clears throat> so, um, and birth control... Uh, having birth control covered has led to a decrease in abortion, which if you're against abortion should be a good thing. But again, did I mention earlier that you can't separate birth control and abortion? And so, um, you know, this is a big year for that. Um, that's not going away, even though we're in the midst of, you know, a, a different issue at the moment. Yeah. Um, the book is Jane Against the World, Roe versus Wade and the Fight for Reproductive Rights. And you can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, if you want to know more, please go to my website, which is karenblumenthal.com. You'll see all my books. Uh, most of the books have activity or discussion guides, um, and there's a lot of information there. Perfect. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope that worked for you. <laughs>